One of the things that we see in Scripture is the statement that every truth should be testified to by two or three witnesses. I believe this is true doctrinally. Uh, when people try to build <coughs> a doctrine on a verse, my first question is, where are the two or three backup <coughs> passages? <coughs> because I think it's very important that that principle uh, guide and direct uh, our understanding of Scripture. <coughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it through this. I'll try. I'll give it the good old college try. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Because out of what we saw earlier, I said persecution's coming. Maybe not a cheerful message, uh, but I think <coughs> a true one. But out of that came the emphasis on those three ministries. The ministry of our priesthood, the ministry of our ambassadorship, and the ministry of our gift. So to back that up and show you that <coughs> it's not just a uh, construct that I developed out of Peter, if you go to Hebrews 10, uh, this is the fourth of the five warning passages. We're not going to look at the warning so much. Um, but just starting in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So what we have in the first three verses here is once again orienting us to who we are in Christ, orienting to our identity. Uh, we are a unique and a chosen people. I mentioned earlier how Peter uses the word calling. And I would suggest to you that whenever you see that word calling later in 2 Peter chapter 1, for example, in verse 10 and 11, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. After I do the first Peter conference on persecution, I'm going to do a second Peter conference on the calling, the combat, and the coronation of the Christian warrior. That's my outline for second Peter. And it's based on those verses. Because what he's basically doing is telling them, you have a calling, and that calling has a mission, and that mission has a payoff, a result. If you do these things, you'll never stumble, and the idea is not that you'll never sin again, it's that the idea is you're going to make it to the end of the race. You're going to make it to that wonderful coronation that's waiting. So the idea of calling always has the concept of identity and purpose. What is my identity and what is my purpose? Our calling is in Christ. Basically, He is the essence of who we are. 
when we talk about being in Christ or who we are in Christ. The only way to comprehend that and understand it is to understand who he is and what he has accomplished. And of course, Paul goes to great detail in books like Ephesians and Philippians to remind us who we are in Christ. And the reason the identity is so important is because if you don't have a, a solid grasp of your identity, it's going to be very hard to accomplish your mission. Uh, your purpose is who you are. Uh, people will often say, well, you, you teach the Bible. Well, that's true. That's what I do. But it's also who I am. It's, it's much more than something that I do. It's something that is the essential part of me. Uh, and that brings it back to identity. So the better we understand our identity in Christ, the better we're going to be able to function in the calling that we've been called to, the mission that God has for us collectively as a body and individually as a believer. So <clears throat> who are we? Well, we have boldness to enter into the holiest, the holy of holies in heaven. Uh, realize again that this book is called Hebrews because who was he writing to? He's writing to Hebrews. Yeah, makes sense, right? Uh, I'm convinced that this book, by the way, is the book that Peter refers to in 2 Peter 3. You remember when Peter said to the folks that he was writing to, Your, our beloved brother Paul has written to you concerning these things? And he calls what Paul wrote to them Scripture? If this isn't the book, then what book is the book that Paul wrote to the Hebrews? It could only be this. And if we don't have that book, and if this is not it, we're missing a book of Scripture. I don't think God's going to slip up like that. He preserves His Word. His Word lives and abides forever. So Paul's saying here, we have a boldness to enter into the holiest. Here are Jewish people who have within their mind, the whole concept of that holy of holies was inviolate. You didn't go in there. No one could go in there. Not even the high priest except once a year and not without blood. And yet here we're being told that we can enter in any time. Does that have little ripples of remembrance from Romans chapter 5 where he said we have access into this grace in which we stand? It's talking about the same thing our access into the very presence of God. Or as he says earlier in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find mercy and help in time of need. So we have a boldness to enter the Holy of Holies in heaven, the real one, not just the symbolic one on earth. Why? By the blood of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Christ is what gave us that access, that open door. By a new and living way, and actually the Greek says a new and a freshly killed way. Christ was the recent sacrifice, the fresh sacrifice that threw open that door, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And you'll remember that as he yelled, it is finished, Father, into your hands I receive my spirit. What happened? The veil ripped from top to bottom. I have a lot of people I talk to about, I don't know why, but there are a lot of people who argue about when the church age began. Um, 
and that, you know, maybe the age of Israel continued on into Acts, maybe up to Acts chapter 13. As far as I can tell, once that veil ripped from top to bottom, that whole system was done. Three times in the book of Hebrews, he uses three different words. He says it was annulled, it was abrogated, it was done away with. Where is it? Right here. He inaugurated for us through the veil. When his flesh was torn, when the penalty was paid, when, as we can say, the spiritual debt was fully accomplished, the veil was rent in two. And he says, having a high priest over the house of God. That is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ seated at the Father's right hand. Let us draw near. We're going to see in verse 22, 23, and 24, three exhortations. Three exhortations. And these three exhortations are, number one, to priesthood. Number two, to ambassadorship. And number three, to ministry. So I just want you to see that here is a correlating passage backing up what we saw earlier. Verse 22, let us draw near. The phrase draw near is a priestly term. It's actually a term that is used of a priest approaching the altar to perform the rites and the rituals of a priest. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, we should not come fearful and trembling. Again, Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly. We come with full assurance of faith, not because of who we are, not because of our performance, but because of the finished work of Christ, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ in us. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's using here terminology that was a part of the function of the priesthood in the Old Testament. As he writes to these Hebrews, they would remember that when a priest was inaugurated, he was given a once-for-all bath, and then every day as he approached to serve, he would wash his hands and his face before he approached the altar. And all of this, of course, is a picture of the fact what Jesus told Peter in the upper room. You remember he said, he who is bathed doesn't need to bathe again. He only needs to wash his feet. So the picture being, number one, we have been cleansed through the sacrifice of Christ once for all, all sins forgiven. Number two, moment by moment, day by day, we examine ourselves and confess our sins, knowing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as a priest, I've had that once for all bath the moment I believed in Jesus Christ, but I need to take care of my responsibility when I approach the altar. I need to make sure that I'm clean. Priestly activity is what he has in mind. Let us draw near. That's the main exhortation. How often should we pray? As often as we can. As often as we're able, as often as we need to. People say, how can we pray without ceasing? In my mind, that just means <laughs> that every day prayer should be an ongoing conversation. I just carry on a conversation with God all day long. I see someone, I say, Father, that person needs help. Oftentimes, going down a street, people passing, one person stands out in your mind. Do you believe that God guides you to that one person? Sometimes you'll see the people on the street asking for money, and I'll walk by 
a hundred of them and not feel a thing, but then there will be that one person. I feel that pull. I trust that it's God guiding. If he doesn't give me that pull, if he doesn't give me that nudge, I don't worry about it, but I see people and I say, Father, that person needs help. Maybe they're crippled. Maybe, they're, maybe they have a look on their face that says their world has just ended, whatever. Father, that person needs help. Maybe I can step up and speak to them. Maybe that opportunity hasn't come, but I can pray. Let us draw near. I urge you with the words of Paul, be more diligent in your prayer life. Pray without ceasing. Just carry on a conversation with God all day long. You know, the prayers in the Bible are always short. You don't see anybody praying 10-minute prayers. Just keep that communication going and intercede on behalf of other people. Pray for the lost. Pray for the immature, the weak, those that need strengthening. Let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Now we're entering into a different thing. Here we're talking about our witness. Let us hold fast. The idea is to hold in a firm and mighty grasp. <coughs> the confession of our hope. What did we just read in 1 Peter 3.15? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Be ready always to give an answer of a reason of the hope that is in you with fear and trembling. In other words, with a sense of great responsibility and accountability. This is serious business. This is important. I don't want to mislead anybody. I don't want to lead anyone astray. I want to make sure that what I say to them, not only is it true, but does it meet their need. I heard a very uh, good, short, brief message from a pastor. It's probably a 10-minute message. But the point that he made was this. How many times do we give people answers that are not the answer they need at the moment? Are we under the leadership of the Spirit and sensitive enough to know how we ought to answer that person in their situation? What scripture, what truth, what word of encouragement is going to meet their need? I think it's very important. I think it's something we should pray for. So what do we need to do? We need to draw near. That's our priesthood. <coughs> we need to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why should we be unwavering? Because look who promised. He's faithful. His promises will never fail. We can be sure. We can be secure. We can have stability because we know that God cannot lie. And that every promise he makes is going to be above and beyond. I don't know about you. In my experience, I've found whenever he fulfills promises for me, it's always bigger than I thought. Always bigger, always better. I go, wow, I thought it would be, you know, so much. When he answers prayers, we pray for a little. He dumps the whole truckload on us. You know, it's just the way God is. Hold fast to that confession. By the way, you can't hold fast a confession that you're not making, right? Are we confessing? I will say to you, I believe with all my heart that we are entering into a time that you and I can have greater effect winning people to Christ than we have ever had before. Because people out there are shaken and scared and they want answers. And it's interesting that people that I read, journalists that I read, some from around 
the world that I have prayed for for years that they would come to a knowledge of Christ through the last three years. All of a sudden they're talking about spiritual warfare and they're talking about the importance of drawing near to God and whether they've come to Christ yet or not, I don't know, but they have moved light years in their quest to find God. Why? Because their souls have been shaken. And that always will harden many, but it'll wake up some. And they're going to start asking for answers. And then finally, verse 24, let us consider one another. This is one of the one another commands. There are 59 altogether in the New Testament, but a lot of them are repetition of the same. If you go on a good search engine and just put in the one another's of the Bible, it'll bring them up. Uh, makes for great study. Um, you know, if we just did what God commands us to do to one another, the phrase one another means others of the same kind, meaning fellow believers. These are commands for us to do with each other. It's a good poster to put on the bath bun, the toilet door, the back of the toilet door, the one another. Yeah, yeah. So what do we do? Consider. But the word consider is one of those key words. Uh, I think two or three times in the book of Hebrews, consider Jesus. Back in, or forward in chapter 12. Consider Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. What's the word? The word means bear down with your mind. Focus, concentrate. Bear down. Use the muscle of your mind to think about this. Consider one another. Could I just ask when you're in a group like this, do you ever just look around and say, is there someone here I could help? Do you ever ask God and say, in this brief time that we have together this afternoon, is there someone that I can lift, someone I can encourage, somebody I can give some direction to or uh, counsel or just a word of encouragement? That's what considering is. It takes a little bit of mental concentration. Consider one another in order to, this is great, stir up love and good works. The word stir up, is the Greek word paroxysm. Hmm. Paroxysm is a word that means heat, friction, and sometimes fire. <coughs> Stirring people up sometimes means making them uncomfortable. You know, when the pastor stands and teaches and he's making a strong point, and you know when that it's like the convicting finger of the Holy Spirit kind of gets down in your soul and just starts saying, hey, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. It's a little bit uncomfortable, but it's important. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. And sometimes that can be done by an example. You ever have someone step in and help someone when you didn't and you're ashamed of yourself? That's stirring up love and good deeds. <coughs> Or maybe you've had someone who was enough of a friend to take you to task and say, you know, you shouldn't have said that to that person. You don't know what they're going through. And it's a little bit uncomfortable. Or someone that says, oh, that person that you were just talking to, oh yeah, they seem like a great person. They seem like they're really cheerful. Well, you know, they've lost three children. Their husband's dying. And I mean, we, we hear stuff like this all the time. 
you go overseas and, and there are people that have their first family and their second family. It's not because they divorced and remarried, it's because their first family all died from a sickness and now they're working on their second family and they're hoping and praying the second family doesn't die. And here you're talking to a person and they're chattering away, cheerful as they can be. You don't know anything about them, but then someone steps up and says, hey, I just want to let you know. That person has gone through tremendous grief. They carry a heavy heart. You know, they, they still cry over the ordeals that they've been through. Once we know, we can pray and be better equipped to help. To stir one another up to love and good works. You know what motivates me to love more than anything else? When I see someone else love. The Bible talks a lot about imitation, be imitators of Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the interesting things about imitation, little children have to learn through imitation. We've learned that the lockdowns and the masks have done tremendous damage. We will probably not see the end of the damage that has been done to little children who have not learned how to speak, and now they're beyond that stage where they're supposed to learn to speak, and now they're having extreme difficulty learning how to talk because you have to be able to see it. You've got to be able to see it. And there are things in the Christian life, and I... I'm ashamed to admit that some of them I have seen in people after being a believer for a long, long time, 60-some years, and studying the Bible intensively for 55, 60 years. And then I'll see someone. Nan and I have found a great church. We love our church. Uh, just an amazing group of loving and caring people a pastor that loves the Word, teaches the Word, lives the Word. It's just wonderful. But you walk in there and sometimes you'll see some not spectacular person, special person, great, you know, applauded person, someone demonstrate an act of grace or kindness or consideration and you go, I never knew what that looked like till now. I heard about it. I taught it. I've just seen it for the first time. There's a young student back in uh, the States that comes to a lot of my conferences, and um, she will often ask the question, what does that look like? She, she comes with a notebook. <coughs> when she comes to a conference, she comes with a notebook, and the pages are full of her questions for me. And she wants to sit down and I've got a few questions for you and I look and I go, how long is this going to take? <laughs> but the one thing she asks over and over again, and this is just an example, but you don't think about it until someone says it. What does that look like? Can I explain what it looks like? I can only explain what it looks like if I've seen it. And I have to see it in the life of someone. And that's so important. So just the way we live, just the way we interact, we ought to be stirring the pot in someone else's life. We should be striking sparks on the Pharaoh rod or however you want to call it. 
stirring people up to what? To love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. Stirring one another up to love and good deeds. When the Bible talks about good deeds, it's not talking about Boy Scout activity. It's not talking about going out of your way to help the little lady over the street unless that's the good deed that God has for you that day. We like to call it divine production. It is God working in my mind and in my soul to lead me to do what he has for me to do that day. Did you ever stop and think that the highest, most noble, good deed that you and I might set our minds on, if it's not a part of the plan of God for us at that moment, at that time, and in that place, it's not a good deed. It's only good when it's guided by the Spirit in obedience to the Word. And when we stir people to love, love will produce good deeds. It can't help it. You can't love and hold it back. Say, well, how do I know what deeds I need to do? It's simple. Just ask God to give you more love, the love of Christ in you for other people. Make it real. Make it genuine. And then let it flow. You know, the problem a lot of times, I'll let you in on a secret, because this has happened in my own life. You pray for God to increase the love for Christ, for other people. You pray and you pray and you pray and you pray. And what we oftentimes don't realize is it's there. It's like a dam, a, a, a huge lake behind a dam. It's all there. And you know what's holding it back? Our thoughts, our wants, our focus, our distractions, our desires, whatever it may be. <coughs> and a lot of times, instead of asking God to increase the love of Christ in my heart, maybe we should pray that he would poke a few holes in my heart and let it out. Because it's there. And it's there to be given to others. You will never know the fullness of the love of Christ for you here and now unless it comes to you through someone else. That's the only way you're going to know it. And that's the only way that you and I are able to show it. And I tell you, in this time that we're living in, above all, children need to see it. Children need to see the reality of the love of Christ as opposed to all of the garbage that they're being spoon-fed every single day of their lives. The love of Christ. As I said earlier, one of my favorite passages, the love of Christ constrains us or compels us. Why does it do that? Why does it drive us forward? Because we judge. If Christ died for the world, the world was dead. The whole world, dead. Did you realize that when Christ said it is finished, every single member of the human race became potentially savable? Every single person. And when we begin to express that kind of love and realize the only thing standing bef between that soul and an eternal future in the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a simple childlike act of faith in Jesus Christ.
So there you have it, and he ties it all together by saying, not forsaking <coughs> the assembling of yourselves together. And we're here this afternoon for that reason. You can't show love for one another if you don't get together with one another. And guess what? You can't show love for one another if you don't forgive one another. And guess what? You can't forgive one another unless you offend one another. You know what churches are good at? Churches are a place where you can go and get offended or get crossways or have someone say or do something. And that's great because... If that didn't happen, there would be no need to forgive and no need to love. Love is best when it's not deserved. That's how we came to Christ. So I'm going to leave it at that. Quick prayer. Once again, thanks for bearing with me with my constant coughing. Father, you know each person here this evening. You know every need. You know every hurt. <coughs> every question, uh, the longing of every heart. I just pray that somehow through my stumbling activity this afternoon, <coughs> you will speak by your spirit through your word to meet the needs that are represented here. We put it all in your hands to accomplish your ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.